Father God, would you please now help us to concentrate, help us to listen hard to you as you speak to us through your word, by your spirit. Please, would you move our hearts so that we see more clearly who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, what it means to live for him today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is anything really worth dying for? That is our question this morning, as we're confronted by this extraordinary account of Stephen, who's the the church's first martyr, the first of thousands, millions even, uh, to come. We, We met Stephen last week, who's one of the guys that the apostles chose as a great administrator. Uh, one who could help them with the task of serving food and free the apostles to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. And so what happens now is in one sense a bit of a surprise because it was meant to be the apostles who did the preaching and Stephen was a kind of administrator. But what we see straight away is that while the apostles, the leaders of the early Christian community, could delegate mercy ministry to Stephen and the other six who were with him, they, in turn, could not delegate evangelism or explaining and defending their faith back to the apostles. Peter, in his first letter in the New Testament, um, says, always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you for a reason for the hope that you have. And that, essentially, is what Peter is doing now, oh, sorry, what Stephen is doing now. But the, the question is, at what point, if any, should the Christian back down and say, you know, this is, this is completely crazy. I'm not going to lose my life over this. Is it really worth dying for this message about Jesus? Now, we're going to accompany Stephen to the courtroom where he's been accused of doing various things. As we heard in the reading, he's been doing great wonders and signs, much like the apostles And just as has happened in in, in earlier chapters, there is opposition. People don't like what they hear. These early Christians are a threat to the status quo, a threat to the uneasy agreements that the Jewish community have with their Roman occupiers, a threat to the power and status of those leading that community. And and their response is similar to what often happens today. So verse 9 in chapter 6, we saw rational argument, arguing with... Stephen about what he's saying and then when that doesn't work they turn to lies verse 11 and then as we see at the end of the reading violence so it's a common pattern we still see today isn't it start with rational arguments when that doesn't work turn to lies and then finally resort to violence whether it's fake news violence on the streets here or abroad at the hands of individuals or even governments or else on social media with again fake news and then the the, the quasi-violence of uh, cancel culture as a virtual way of killing somebody that you disagree with, as it were. And we see it even tragically within the church from time to time in different ways. Now, many of us might think, though, what, why bother arguing? What, what good does it do, Stephen, to stand his ground in the way that he does? Because he winds up dead. 
But as we'll see, that the reason that he's willing to do that is because of the truth of what he believes about Jesus and about God and about God's plan for his people. So let's plunge in with Stephen to this lengthy defence. I had a day off on Friday and I took Zachary to Legoland on his inset day. Uh, Legoland, is, it has to be said, is at the tamer end of theme parks. Uh, but they still get you to put your arms up in the air and the bar comes down and they're kind of, are you ready to go? You're strapped in and you're ready for the ride. And so I need to say the same to you. You don't have to put your arms in the air. But you need to be strapped in and ready for the ride because we're not going to explore every verse of chapter 7, but we're going to try and um, go through it and see exactly what Stephen is saying. So buckle up and get ready to concentrate as we skirt through this argument that Stephen makes. The thrust of Stephen's argument is that they think Stephen is introducing new, heretical, un-Jewish teaching... But Stephen's response is, no, this is how it's always been. And then he turns the tables back on them. Okay, so he's saying, look, this is no, there's nothing new about what I'm saying here. This is how it's always been. This is the faith that you profess, you who are accusing me, he says to them. This is the faith you profess too. And if you follow through the implications of that, you'll see that it leads to Jesus and you'll see that it leads to what I'm preaching today. That's his argument. Okay, so let's see how he says that. He says, first of all, I'm going to put three, three th uh, points on the screen for us to follow. First of all, God has always been the God of the whole world. And that's the first 36 verses of his speech. Okay, now, bear with me. The playwright George Bernard Shaw, um, who, who wrote Pygmalion, things like that, he called Stephen an intolerable young speaker, and a tactless and conceited bore. Um, and I think the implication of what he was saying was, you know, it's no surprise that they stoned him after such a tedious speech. But, of course, that is a massive misunderstanding of what Stephen is doing in these verses. So th this first bit, verses 1 to 36, focuses on three people. Okay, we get Abraham, then we get Joseph, and then we get Moses. Okay, Abraham, Joseph, Moses. Now I'm going to read the verses, but the big theme that runs through is the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole world. And in fact, his dealings with his people have always gone well beyond the borders of that land, beyond the borders of Israel. Now, we'll see exactly why Stephen is saying this later on, but I'm going to read from verse 1, and what you need to do is you need to listen out for all the references to things that are happening that are not in the land of Canaan, that are not in the land of Israel. Okay, so just listen as we read this. So, verses one, uh, from verse 1, first of all, the high priest asks Stephen, page 1098, are these charges true? So this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, not in Canaan, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and, I'll, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance there, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. 
For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated. Now, that's talking about Egypt, isn't it? It's talking about the exodus to come. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God says. And afterwards, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelfth patriarchs and so can you see that was Abraham okay we're kind of doing he's kind of doing a an overview of Genesis very quickly and then going into Exodus he's telling the story but in in focusing on Abraham he's already kind of shown that God's dealings with Abraham went well beyond the land they started outside the land the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel he's the God of the whole world okay so that's that's what we see um to begin with and then we continue with Joseph and just count how many times we hear about another non-Canaan non-Israel land which is Egypt how many times do we hear so from verse 8 from from verse 9 because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph they sold him as a slave into Egypt but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles he gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh king of Egypt So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So if you've been with us over the last couple of years, we've kind of gone through Genesis very slowly. And what Stephen has done here is he's summarized all the things that we've seen. We've seen Abraham and then we've seen more recently Joseph. So it might be a little bit familiar. But... The key point to, to, to see is God is not just the God of Israel, he's the God of the whole world, and he's dealing with his people in Egypt. Okay, And it's there that we then hear about Moses. So from verse 17, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue him, but they didn't. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. So God appearing in uh, in, 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 through this burning bush, where does that happen? Again, outside the land of Israel. They're not there yet. God is not just this local God for uh, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. He's the God of the whole world, and he's dealing with his people outside of 
um, the, uh, of Israel. When he saw this, verse 31, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground, outside the land of Israel. God is the God of the whole world. I've indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Where did all these wonders happen? Outside the land. Okay, so did you get the point? It's a theme that runs through that uh, very, um, you know, pretty long section, but it keeps coming up. God is not just the God of Israel, he's the God of the whole world. God is bigger than you think. Now, why does that matter? Why is that important? Because the trumped-up charge that Stephen's accusers have made against him is two things. It's that he's anti-temple and he's anti-law. So, and temple and law are kind of two massive things for Israel. So if you're anti-temple and anti-law, you're anti-Israel. And so that's why they're kind of having a go at him. But Stephen is beginning his defense by saying, the God that you claim to worship is the God not just of this specific place and nation of Israel. He's the God of the whole world. He's the God of glory, verse 2. He's mighty and powerful to create and save. Whereas Stephen's accusers have little concept of how he could ever be or act outside of their carefully controlled religious system. They cannot imagine how God could be there. And Stephen brings together two things about God which are still really important for us to grasp today. What are those two things? Well, the first is that God is not just a tribal God, you know, a local God for us, as it were. He's the God of the whole world. Are we getting this? He's the God of the whole world. So what does that mean? Well, it means he, he's the God who made our neighbours and our colleagues, the Muslim next-door neighbour, the atheist colleague. He made them all. He's their God too, even if they won't acknowledge him. He's the God who made all the nations of the world. See, so often as Christians, we end up domesticating him to something smaller than he is. You know, he's my God, but, you know, my friend over here has a different God, and, you know, that's fine. I wouldn't dream of imposing on her. I'll just stay in my lane doing my kind of Christian thing. But Stephen knows that's impossible. You know, because if he believed that, what would he have done? He'd have said, sorry, guys, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry for implying that you need to repent of your false religion and turn and follow Jesus. That was terribly presumptuous of me. You know, you do your religion your way and I'll do mine my way. But he realizes, no, if God is the God of the whole world, and he always has been, because he made the world, he's the one true God, then he's the same God that the whole world needs to hear about, and especially these accusers who also claim to worship this God. So he's not just local or tribal or just true for me. But there's also another important point here, which is that he's also not just some kind of generic God. 
He's the God of Israel, the one who revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. Now, why do that history lesson? Why point out all the ways that he revealed himself all those years ago? Why does that matter? Why does it matter even then? Why does it matter now today to remember that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Moses? Because that God is the one who is the God of the whole world. God is not just a sort of impersonal, vague concept. He's a specific person. He acted in history and he made and kept promises to create a people centred on his son, Jesus. Now, what's the implications of that? Well, think about this. Sometimes people will say to us, you know, I'm an atheist and I don't believe in God. Okay, fine. But the the thing to say back in, in one sense is, well, which God is it that you are rejecting when you call yourself an atheist? Because actually, do you know what? There are lots of gods that I reject too. You know, I'm a Christian, but there are loads of gods I don't believe in because they're not the one true God. The God I believe in is this God who made promises to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Moses, And the God who then kept those promises that he had made in Jesus. That's the God that I believe in. And so then you you want to say back to the person who just says, well, I just don't believe in God. And say, well, no, have you considered this God? Not just, I don't just want to talk vague concepts of godness, of divinity. Who are we talking about? We're talking about this God. He's the one we need to... Um, to think about the one who's revealed himself ultimately in Jesus have you considered Jesus before you decide to call yourself an atheist he's not generic he is this God he's the God of the whole world and he always has been okay so then Stephen moves on he's always been the God of the whole world then secondly God's people have always rejected God's servants and their message. God's people have always rejected God's servants and their message from verses 37 to 43 in chapter 7. So he speaks to those who claim he's breaking the law of Moses and listen to what he says. Can you see this? Verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So what's he saying? He's saying, you who claim to be law keepers, understand first of all that our ancestors could never keep this law that you claim that you keep. Instead, what did they do? They rejected Moses, who gave the law, and rejected the law that he gave. And further down at the end of verse 53, he says the same thing. You who have received the law, you've not obeyed it. So Stephen's accusers are what you might call classic legalists. The law of Moses is often compared to a mirror. It's the image that the Apostle James uses in his letter later in the New Testament. So what's the point of that? It's it's saying this law is not a way for you to get into God's good books. That's not what it's there for. You know, here's a list of stuff, do this and then God will accept you. It's not that at all. It's, It's there as a mirror 
But you hold up and you go, oh, these are all the ways that I'm not measuring up. That's what a mirror does, isn't it? It highlights the problem. You look in the mirror and you think, oh, I've got to fix that. It doesn't actually do the fixing. So when the law says, do not murder and do not steal and do not commit adultery or whatever it is, it's not there in order for us to kind of pat ourselves on the back, but for us to realize, well, no, actually, that is what my heart is like. If I'm honest, my heart regularly longs to murder and steal, and it lusts after people and things. The law is exposing that reality. But our hearts also hate being exposed. And our preference is always to justify ourselves, to say, oh, we're not that bad, really. And again, to try and use that same law as a way to show how good we are. But the thing about a mirror is that you can't stop it from highlighting what is wrong with you, can you? The only way you can stop it, actually, is by shutting your eyes to it so that you don't look at it. And so Stephen is trying to wake these people up. Do you not see this is what we're like? Look at this law. Look at what it says. Do you really think you're able to keep this? Now, in one sense, Stephen is just throwing back the accusation that they make of him back on them. So they say he's breaking the law, and he says they're breaking the law. Now, is that helpful? Well, there's a difference, you see. The legalist will always say, I'm right, because I use the law to kind of prove how good I am, but then at the same time they'll say, and you're the lawbreaker, you're wrong. So it's a way of sort of puffing myself up and pushing you down. That's the kind of legalist approach. But the Christian who, who trusts in Jesus will say, actually, no, we're all lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers. We're just one beggar who has nothing telling another beggar who has nothing where they too can find bread. And as Jesus made clear again and again and again in his ministry, it's refusing to admit that you're a lawbreaker. That is what's going to keep you out of God's kingdom. And that is what Stephen's accusers are doing like their ancestors they are rejecting the law that they claim to keep and now verse 52 they also rejected God's ultimate servant Jesus as we've seen and this is an accusation that the apostles have meant have made many times through these chapters look what you've done they keep saying but Stephen then goes further they've, they've, they've rejected Jesus but now their final thing they're doing is rejecting this, this messenger standing in front of them now as they prepare to stone him. Now, it's no coincidence that Luke, did you notice this? Luke says his face was like an angel. That last verse in chapter 6. Now, that's not, that's not just saying he, you know, he looked nice. The law, we are told, was given to Moses through an angel. So, and Stephen says it himself in verse 38. And verse 53, the law was given to Moses through an angel. The implication is, you are treating Stephen the way your ancestors treated Moses and the way you treated Jesus. And Luke is just highlighting, look, the messenger you need to listen to is the one 
who looks like an angel because he's the one who's representing God in this situation. So God's people have always rejected God himself. This is what it's always been like. Are you going to learn that lesson? Are we going to learn that lesson today? Are we going to learn that following Jesus means realizing we contribute nothing and he gives us everything? Are we going to learn that that is the news that we have to share with the world around us? Then, thirdly and finally, God's people have always rejected God himself. Verses 44 to 53. God's people have always rejected God himself. The final argument in these verses is about the tabernacle. Again, the tabernacle was where God dwelt with his people, where he was present with them. And the point is, he was present with his people outside the land. So verse uh, 44, let me read this now from verse uh, 44 in chapter 7. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. Not in the land, in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern that he'd seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations. God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However... The Most High does not live in houses built but made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So what is, what is Stephen saying there? He's saying God does not dwell in temples or tabernacles. You can't contain him. So what was the point of the tabernacle? What was the point of building a temple in the land? Well, it was just to be a symbol of God's presence among his people, pointing forward to when he would come and dwell permanently in person, in Jesus. That was its purpose. Not to be the one place where God is and he's nowhere else. So when they accuse Stephen of being anti-temple... Well, in one sense, they're right, because he's saying, now that Jesus is, has come, the temple is no longer the center of the action among God's people, because the thing that it was pointing forward to has happened. Jesus has come. He's, God has come in person. But when they continue to insist that, no, the temple is where it's at, and that's at the center of what God is doing, actually what they're doing then is they're constraining God to the temple, and by that they are rejecting him. So verse 51, Stephen concludes, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to resist the Holy Spirit in this context? Well, Jesus says something similar. Do you remember he talks about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? It's the same kind of thought here. In the end, to, blast, to, to resist the Holy Spirit is to resist what God is doing on earth. It means ultimately to reject, therefore, Jesus. That is exactly what uh, Stephen's hearers have been doing. Rejecting the one that God sent as the way to God. That is how they've been resisting the Holy Spirit. And the way that they're rejecting Jesus is by confining God to a building, confining God to a particular place. They're saying he's not the God of the whole world. He's just God here. 
which of course is another way of saying he's not really God at all. And the thing is, people have been doing that ever since. Tending to reduce God to kind of Sundays only while you're in a church building. You know, that's God's domain, but you know, the rest of the week and the rest of the world is, is yours to do as you want. Now, I think often we think, well, yeah, we know that's not right. I mean, we're not like those churches that just do a sort of ritual for an hour on a Sunday and, you know, uh, that can even make us feel a bit smug. But actually, here's the question for us. Are we actually able to connect our faith from Sunday to Monday morning? To the workplace, to the school gate, to coffee with a neighbour? Or actually, are we like these accusers here? And in our own way, we've found a way to confine God to Sunday, to this building, but not to the rest of the world and the rest of life. The thing is, in one sense, doing that will mean we have a far easier life when we don't draw the dots, we don't join the dots, we don't connect between Sunday and Monday. It makes life a lot easier. Because, you know, it just means you can keep your head down in the office. No one will know where we're a Christian. Life will be easy. And we're certainly unlikely to end up dead for our faith like Stephen did. But Stephen would be saying to us, are you sure you're worshipping the right God there? The one who is the God of all people everywhere and not just your personal Sunday God. Because that is who God is. He can't be contained. Now maybe we think, I just haven't got it in me to suffer like Stephen did for my faith. I couldn't do that. But Stephen is here to show us and remind us The God of glory, who is God of all people everywhere, he works through rejection. He worked through his prophets when they were rejected. He worked through his son Jesus when he was rejected, when he died on the cross. What did he do with that? He turned that into the salvation of the world. You see, he works through rejection. And now what we see is the same pattern here. And actually, that is exactly what we see in the verses that follow. So how does he work through rejection here? How does he use this terrible thing of Stephen being stoned in this way? And we think it's terribly unjust and unfair. God works through even this for good. How does he do that? Can you see? Can you see, first of all, Luke wants to see that Stephen is like Jesus, verse 56. He sees Jesus, which is what enrages them to the point of killing him. He doesn't resist. He prays, Lord, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The sort of thing that Jesus prayed at the cross. And then, like Jesus, he falls asleep, which is a remarkable way to describe such a violent death. But what is the outcome? We snuck into the beginning of chapter 8 in the reading because we need to see the start of what happens next. We meet this guy, Saul, and we're going to hear a lot more about him in the chapters to come. That's the Apostle Paul, of course, and, and Luke is not afraid to show the reality of his wicked past, but the result of Stephen's death is what? Verse 1, look at this, of chapter 8. A further great persecution and scattering 
So in one sense, you think, oh, it's terrible. The apostles have been scattered out all over the place, and the church has been, it's going to be destroyed. What's going to happen? Well, the result was, verse 4, more preaching. Those who'd been scattered, what did they do? They preached the word wherever they went. And here's the thing to see. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, at the beginning of this book, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. So that's the big theme verse for the whole book. You will be my witnesses, he says, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's happening here? That is being fulfilled. So Stephen's accusers think they're getting rid of Stephen. They think they're getting rid of these wretched Christians who won't shut up so they can go back to life being normal again. But actually, through Stephen's death, God's plan simply continues to unfold and be fulfilled just as he promised. That is the kind of God that God is. We can trust him. In in, in 1949, as, as many here will know, the Chinese Communist Party kicked the 800 overseas missionaries out of China. And Christianity became illegal. And the country's one million Christians were driven underground. The result was extraordinary. First, just in terms of those missionaries, 250 of them were quickly redeployed in other Far Eastern countries. So the gospel was preached in new places where it hadn't previously been preached. And then fast forward to 1990, as China began to open up and the facts became known, the one million who'd gone underground had become more like eight million. And now what is it today? Well, it's something like over 40 million. Estimates vary, maybe up to 80 million. And by 2030, people think it may be as much as 250 million. God's enemies intend it for harm, but God uses it for growth. And the thing is, if God can do that on that big scale with those huge events and bring, make sure the gospel goes worldwide, even as his enemies try their hardest to stop it, He can also do it on a small scale with us. Of course he can. What are we afraid of? So is this message, this Jesus, worth dying for? Is it even, you know, stop short of dying? Is it even worth suffering for? Is it even even worth just having a, a slightly harder life than you might have otherwise because you've put your hand up and said, yeah, I'm a Christian, actually? Now, of course, there is a judgment call to make about... You know, what is the right hill to die on, as they say? What is the right issue to suffer for? When should I speak up and say? You know, should I do that in absolutely every situation? What, you know, and there's, there's wisdom there. There is a wisdom and a right judgment call to make. When do I dig my hills in? When do I let things go? But the bottom line is, Stephen says to us, it will never be a bad bet to move all your chips over into the Jesus corner and stick with him no matter what. Even if he might lose everything for doing so. Do we get that? It will never be a bad bet to move all your chips over into the Jesus corner and stick with him no matter what. Because the God we meet in Jesus is the God of the whole world who brings good out of evil 
whose plan cannot fail. So stick with him. Let me lead us in prayer before we sing our final song. Father, would you fix in our hearts these truths that we've heard about who you are and about what you're like, about why it is worth even being willing to suffer, even being willing even to die. Because you are the God who brings good out of evil. You are the God who works through rejection. You're the God of the whole world. And your plan will succeed. Thank you for that we, that we can trust you. Amen.